Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I've been uh, enjoying being off the last couple of weeks. I've actually been here working on essentials for most of that time, but it's awesome that God has brought some great teachers to our body, right? And so I hope you enjoyed that time with uh, Joel and Dave. Got a lot of good reports and excited about that. That's kind of our, our core philosophy here at Rocky Peak is we really from the beginning been the vision to have multiple teachers that we can grow from. I just believe that God's teaching different people different things and there's kind of a healthier menu for the body to have more than one person teaching every week. And so I hope you enjoyed that. But it's great to be back. When I did take off about three days, three or four, three nights I guess to go to Pismo Beach and that was fun and we had a good time uh, getting away but it's awesome to be back. We're starting a brand new series. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're very uh, brand new today, already met three new people, very first time today, so you may be like one of them too, and if you're, you're here for the first time, we are really glad you're here. So uh, inside your program, if you're, you're new, you won't know this, but inside your program is a message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching, and so we're going to be doing that now. So uh, if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. Y'all ready? Y'all set? Yeah. All right, let's jump in. Father, we're just so thankful to be here, we're thankful for what you're doing in our church and our lives, and and how you really are changing us from the inside out and teaching us what it means to be part of a movement, a passionate Christ followers who are loving you more than anything else in life, running after you with all our hearts. And today as we come to this incredible letter uh, from, from James to this group of new believers early on in the movement of Jesus, we pray that you would use it to shape us, mold us, teach us what it means to be followers of Jesus and experience all you have for us in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the story starts today, it's, uh, it's 11 o'clock at night, late at night, and his uh, folks have gotten to bed. He's just 19 years old, and uh, he's sitting at his kitchen table, and uh, the last six months have been totally unbelievable. He, he got raised in a Christian home, uh, not always followed closely, but, but raised in a Christian home, always took his faith seriously, um, but not always followed. But the last six months, I mean, God has just come into his life in an amazing way, and for the very first time in his life, he's begun to experience the presence and the power and the leading of God's spirit in his life. And during these months, I mean, the word of God has come alive. He just had this kind of insatiable hunger for God's word. Uh, God's using him, teaching him. It's been an amazing journey. And he, he just never wants to lose what he's experiencing from God. And, and so it's 11 o'clock at night. Uh, folks are in bed. The house is, is dark except for he's sitting at the kitchen table. And he, and he opens up the word to spend some time with God, as he often is doing these, these, during these, these days. He opens it up, and he comes to this passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture he's read many times before, but but it's one of those times the Holy Spirit is just going to shine a flashlight on it, and it's going to come alive. It's going to speak to him with power. And uh, and so so it happens. He's reading this passage. This particular passage jumps out, begins to speak, and and it's just a powerful statement about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's read it many times, but it's never spoken to him like this. It's like like the Holy Spirit is just taking the blinders off his life. It's just kind of, it's just this, this, Truth is screaming at him with power and clarity. And it's just gripping him and in a way it's hard to understand. It's like he feels like, he's, like his spirit's in a vice grip. But on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting what's being told him, what the Holy Spirit's showing him. But on the other hand, it's, it's incredibly terrifying because what's being required. And so, so there he is. He's locked on, kind of a laser lock. And he feels like he can't move forward and he can't move back because his truth is being revealed. And you know how once truth is being revealed, you've got to respond one way or another. And his truth is being revealed and he feels like he can't go back because to go back would be to, to turn around and to walk away from Jesus and not to continue following him. But to go forward just sounds so, so scary, so terrifying. He doesn't know what to do. And so for the next half an hour, he's there in this laser lock like he can't move. And there's this tremendous, tremendous battle for his soul. He feels this war going on inside, being pulled from both sides, knowing and just sensing intuitively that whatever he decides is going to determine his future and his destiny. Well, today we're, uh, we're entering into a brand new series, and I'm so excited about this. I've been working in this since November, and uh, I am excited about where we're going, what God's going to do as he teaches us kind of the next steps of, of what it means to be a church of passionate Christ followers. And you can see on your note sheet, it's a series that's based on a little letter in the New Testament uh, called the letter of James. And we're calling this series Just Do It for reasons that will become more evident later on. But uh, as I often do at the start of a series, uh, I want to take, do a couple things today. First of all, so I want to stop back and just take a few minutes to talk about some of the basics of this letter, who it was written to, uh, why it was written, 
what its core message is so we can kind of get prepared to, to jump in the series. And then secondly, I want to come back and look at just a single statement that, that James makes, uh, kind of a radical statement that he makes in the very first verse about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It kind of defines both where we're going in this series and defines for us as a church what it means to be a church of, of passionate Christ followers. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called uh, James 101, a quick overview. And what I want to do is just kind of make five quick statements that help us get a, a kind of a feel for this book and this letter and where we're going. So uh, let's jump in. You'll notice each one starts with this little phrase, this letter is. And so the first one goes like this, that this letter is from Jesus' younger brother. Okay? This is a letter from, from James, who's J- Jesus' younger brother. Now, a lot of you probably don't know this, but James comes from a big, I mean, Jesus comes from a big family. Like we often think of, I don't know, growing up, I always thought, that uh, he probably came from like an only child or something, you know, because, because he just kind of acts like an only child. I don't know. But, um, you know, just kind of perfect, you know. But, um, but anyway, I always thought that. But, you know, the Bible says in Mark chapter 6, and we won't turn there now, but, but apparently Jesus came from a large family. That apparently what happened is, of course, Mary and Joseph come together before they, they have sexual intercourse. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and, and so Jesus is going to be born the Son of God. It's a supernatural thing. But, but after that, then after Jesus is born, that Mary and Joseph start having normal sexual relations, and so they start having kids the old-fashioned way. And, and they do a really good job at it. They're really good. And so they end up with at least seven kids because we, we know in, in, in Mark chapter 6, we're told that James, uh, Jesus has at least four younger brothers, and the first on the list is James, probably the second oldest, and then it mentions a couple sisters as well. So at least seven kids in the family, so just crazy, like what was that like growing up with Jesus, right? Like, like, have you ever thought of that? Like a lot of you had older brothers, I'm one of them, who thought they were God, right? But, but usually they're wrong. Yeah, but, but it's like, mom, he never gets in trouble. I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. He just does the right thing. Um, so anyway, he grows up with Jesus as his, his older uh, brother. And, and then what we know about James, though it's really fascinating, is that early on he doesn't believe in Jesus. Like during his ministry, uh, he doesn't buy in. Uh, in fact, we're told in John chapter 7 that none of his brothers bought into Jesus. They, they, you know, it's, it's a little hard to believe your big brother is God, right? So uh, you need to be doing the miracles. They're just having a hard time with it. So, so they're, they're, they're not buying in. In fact, they actually think he's a little bit crazy. You know, he's got like this Messiah complex. And uh, so uh, we're, we're going to talk about that more uh, on Easter weekend but, uh, but what happens then is after his death, you know, Jesus comes back to alive, right? He's, he's resurrected. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is what we'll be looking at at Easter, that, that he actually makes a point of going to his brother James and, and revealing himself. And so this, this becomes a turning point in the life of James, and it leads to a radical redefinition of their relationship. We're going to be talking about that more later. And so James moves from being a true skeptic to a true believer. And not only a believer, but as we go through the book of Acts, what we find is that James uh, actually goes on in the next 15, 20 years to become kind of a key leader in the early movement of Jesus. In fact, it looks like from appearances, he became what we would call today the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, which is the mother church of the whole movement of Jesus, kind of the bishop of Jerusalem, if you will. And so, uh, so, so that's who's writing this, this, this book, this James' younger brother of Jesus. Now, second thing that uh, we need to know is that, uh, that the book is written to scattered Jewish believers. So one of the things we know about the early movement of Jesus in Jerusalem is that fairly early on there was some major persecution that caused the new believers in Jesus to spread throughout, start spreading throughout the world. And so, so James, here he is, this leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter to some of these scattered Jewish believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They may have been scattered by the persecution. He, he, may, be, he may just be talking to, to Christ's followers, uh, however they got there. But, uh, but we see this in chapter 1 and verse 1. So I want you to take your Bibles, and let's take a look at that. J- James chapter 1 and verse 1. <coughs> says, James, a servant of God, and so of course there's many James in the New Testament, but according to early church uh, tradition, this is James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, you know, same, same uh, mother, different father. 
And so uh, James uh, is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, when you hear the word 12 tribes, the phrase, what do you think of? Yeah, you, yeah, you think of, good, three people got it. Uh, the, the, you think of the nation of Israel, right? Isn't that what you think of? Right, you don't think of like American Indians, right? Like, okay, just check in, see if you're with me. Uh, you think, of, yeah, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so uh, it's interesting because the word here that's used for scattered is actually often used as a technical term. In the Greek, the word is diaspora. Uh, you may have heard of that. And so after the Jews in the Old Testament were driven from their homeland in exile, most of them never made their way back. And so from that point on, Jews began to be spread throughout the Roman world. And so they would often refer to the nation of Israel in terms of diaspora, the, the Jewish nation that scattered, okay? And so it would appear here that what James is writing is he's writing a letter to the nation of Israel that has come to believe, those who've come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, uh, they're scattered throughout the Roman world, maybe due to that persecution in the, in the early church at Jerusalem. Now, there's another alternative. Uh, many times in the New Testament, the nation uh, or the movement of Jesus, what we call the church, uh, the movement of Jesus is referred to as the new Israel, the new people of God. And so it may be that in a symbolic way, what he's saying is I'm writing to the new Israel, uh, both Jews and Gentiles. But here's what you find. As you read through James, it becomes very clear that we're reading a, a document that is very Jewish. We're reading a document that it comes very early in the movement of Jesus. It's written to, to, to Jewish Christ followers who are scattered. And you'll see this, for example, in several places. But one example would be in chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, James is talking about the danger of favoritism in the church. And he says, hey, if a rich man comes to your meeting, okay, if a rich man comes to your meeting, but it's interesting in the Greek, what it says is, he doesn't say if a rich man comes to your church. What he says is, if a rich man comes to your synagogue. That's what it literally says. And so what, what we seem to have here is this letter is written to Jewish Christ followers very early in the movement of Jesus. In fact, most scholars, and I would throw my lot in with him, most scholars believe that the, the, book, the letter of James, catch this, is the earliest document in the whole New Testament, okay? So, so it's before the Gospels, before Acts was written. It's the very first document in the New Testament. So what that means is as we're reading in this letter, it's like a window. In, it's the very first window of the New Testament into the movement of Jesus and what it was like to be there when the movement of Jesus was very young and very few Gentiles had even come in. It was just, it was a Jewish movement. Are you with me? Can I follow what I'm saying? Very early, okay. Now, number three. The third thing that I'd say about this letter is that this letter is deeply rooted in the teaching of Jesus. So, so what you're going to find as you read through the letter of James is it, it's often going to sound like the teaching of Jesus. Like in the, you're going to hear the echoes of the teaching of Jesus in the background constantly. Now what's really fascinating is remember if we have the date right, which we're putting the date probably 40 to 45, somewhere A.D., so we're talking 10 to 15 years after the, the resurrection of Jesus. If we have that date right, what this means is, of course, there were no gospels written at this time, right? So it's not like, it's not like J James is reading his gospels. What, what you get the sense is you're reading the, the teaching of this leader in the church of Jerusalem who grew up with Jesus and was very likely there in much of his teaching throughout his ministry, and we've already said that he didn't believe in Jesus throughout his ministry, but let's face it, Jesus was the rock star of the nation, right? And I'm sure James was his roadie at time. I mean, just kind of, a, you're going to hang out, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm his brother, you know? And so you, you're going to be there in the crowd, you're going to pick it up, and even if you don't totally buy in at that time, later on after the resurrection, when you do buy in, man, you're going to go back, and, you, and you're going to be like, wow, remember what he said, and so what you have here as we go through James is often going to feel like, like he's writing to, uh, uh, you're going to hear like the echoes of the teaching of Jesus in the background. In fact, more, catch this, more than any other letter in the New Testament, James, is, you're going to hear the teaching of Jesus in the background. So what this means is if we go through, it's one of the reasons I love the book. As we go through this letter in the, in the coming weeks, uh, uh, what we're going to be doing is we're often going to go be going back to the teaching of Jesus to see this is where it came from. It's almost like, it's, it's, it's not like he's quoting Jesus. It's like he's just so close to Jesus that he's absorbed him. 
And, and so as he's now leading these Christ followers that are now 15 years later and how to follow Jesus in their culture uh, that, they're, that they're facing, it's like he's just, you're just hearing the teaching of Jesus come out. So we're going to often go back to this series, probably about every week, we'll be going back to what did Jesus say about the same topic. We'll be comparing it to what, what uh, James says about it, and, and through that we'll, be, we'll better understand what James is saying and better understand what Jesus is saying by, by comparing them. And so in a sense, this is like the first gospel in a way. You're going you're to get the teaching of Jesus as seen through the, the eyes of, uh, of his younger brother, okay? Now, number four, the fourth thing I'd say is that this, uh, this letter is extremely practical. You know, we, we just finished the letter of Galatians in our series on freedom, and, and you, know, if, you know, Paul is very theological, right? He's very long sentences, uh, 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 uh uh, kind of uh, very intricate logic, very detailed, very structured. Um, and, and so um, uh, in, in, uh, he, he's a very theological guy. Uh, James is like the opposite, very practical guy. Uh, he's, not that he doesn't uh, believe in theology, not that he doesn't think it's important, uh, not that he doesn't have a theology. It's almost like, hey, hey, we're all in this. We're all Christ followers here, right? So we all know what we believe. Let's just get down to business. And, and so it's going to be very practical. And this is why so many people uh, love James. Like my guess would be that for many of you here, if you've been a Christ follower for two or three years and kind of starting to get familiar with the word, my guess is that for many of you, if I would ask you, uh, of all the books in the Bible, 66, like what would be your top five? My guess is that many of you would put James in your top five. You just love it because it's so practical. And here's what you find in the book of James. James seems to be writing to a group of Christians that, that many of the Christians he's writing to have kind of one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. They're what I like to call church goers, not Christ followers. Right? These are kind of religious people. They believe in Jesus at some level. They're going to church, but they're not really following the teaching of Jesus. And so what James is going to be saying throughout this letter is, listen, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To means a follower of Jesus means you follow Jesus' teaching. Okay? And so if you, he says, if you tell me that you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow what Jesus says, you're living in delusion. That's what he's going to say. That, that you, you have, he says, the kind of faith that you have is not real faith. It's not the real deal. It's what he's going to call worthless faith. It's what he's going to call dead faith. He's going to say it can't save you. He said, because this is the way we're wired as human beings that we do what we believe. And, and, so, and so if you say you believe in Jesus but you don't follow his teaching, you, you're just deceiving it. You don't really follow. And so what this leads to then is a book that's highly practical. And so, like, in page after page, chapter after chapter, he's just going to keep on back and he's just going to go from one practical topic to, to the next. And so, he's going to talk to us about, like, well, how do you go through hard times? When you go through hard times, you're like, how do you go through hard times? Uh, when, you, when you're in a jam and you need wisdom in your life, how do you get wisdom? Uh, if you're a, uh, you're a Christ follower now, how should you think about yourself? How do you get your self-image? Where do you get that from? A temptation. Anyone ever deal with that? Right? So, like, I know you, you're Christian. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, joke. Um, someone's like, oh, write it down. Um, yeah, the, how do you deal with temptation? Uh, he's going to talk about uh, our, our, our speech and controlling our tongue. He's going to talk to us about uh, loving the poor. He's going to talk to us about living a morally pure life. He's going to talk to us about loving one another. What does it really look like to love one another? He's going to talk to us about true wisdom, what it looks like. He's going to talk to us about uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, leaving the world behind. He's going to talk to us about uh, 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 kind of praying for the sick and how to do that. I mean, it's just practical, practical practical you know and so it's just one of the great things uh, about this book and over and over again though it, it's it's almost like it's a manual on christian living you know it's like it's like he's not gonna spend a lot of time developing complex theology he's kind of assuming we got that we're gonna jump right in what does it look like to follow uh jesus okay now uh by the way uh in this this little book it's got 108 verses we're gonna stretch it out for about five months but uh got 108 verses and uh and, and catch this, 50 commands. 50 commands in 108 verses. Why I'm calling this James, just do it. <laughs> so uh, then number four, <coughs> or number five. Uh, the fifth thing about this book I'd say is it's a highly topical book. 
And, and what I mean by this, I'm talking about the way this, this, this letter is structured. Um, like, w- when you read Paul's writings, like we just finished a series in Galatians, when you, pe- when you read Paul's, it, it is very detailed, very theological, it's very logical. Like, you read Paul, long sentences, uh, uh, long arguments, Every statement leads to the next statement. Very much, there's a flow of thought. You can follow, something's hard to follow, but, but you can always find it. It's always there. James is exactly the opposite. It's incredibly random. It's like he's got this barrel of wisdom here with pearls in it. He just kind of reaches in, throws a few at you, you know? He's like, like just kind of random. And, and, and it's funny because um, what you'll find in James is there is a sense of like key words, it's almost like you're having a conversation. He says, well, let me talk to you about, about wisdom, you know. And, and he's like, you know, and, and if you do this, it's going to make you perfect. Well, let me talk about perfect, you know. Let's, let's talk about that, you know. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. Well, let me talk about blessing, you know. And so he's just kind of moving along. Uh, just kind of like one thought leads to another. But there's no, really, no, no real like logical flow. Now, it's interesting. There are uh, many scholars who believe, no, there is a logical flow. You just have to look really hard for it. And if you look really hard for it, you can actually see there's this flow of thought and why one subject follows another. The problem is when you compare those scholars, no one ever agrees what the flow is. So, so what I'm saying is that we'll be, we'll be looking for it, right? We'll be looking. Sometimes we'll see connection between one section and, and the next. But, but the bottom line is it, it, it's, it's, it is very random. It's going to come like that. In fact, uh, many scholars will compare it to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, that is, you know, you read Proverbs, like one proverb, the next, there's not necessarily a connection. And so uh, Proverbs is an example of the Old Testament, what we call wisdom literature, like, like Job and, and Psalm, uh, certain Psalms, not all, just certain Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They're, they're books about how to live life. Here's how to live life. They're giving you wisdom. And James would be an example of New Testament wisdom literature. And so, uh, so what we have is just like, here's how to live life as a Christ follower, and it's going to be kind of random at times, but it doesn't really matter that it's random because every pearl he's throwing is a pearl of great price, and so he's just kind of throwing this great topic after great topic about how to follow Jesus, uh, kind of a manual on Christian uh, living, okay? And so those are five things. So let me, let me wrap that up real quick then. Let me, let me go, let's review those. So it's, it's written by James, uh, brother, younger brother of Jesus, grows up with Jesus, uh, not a believer, is a true skeptic, uh, but because of the resurrection, uh, decides to follow Jesus, becomes a true, true believer. And he rises to a place of leadership, becomes the lead pastor in the church of Jerusalem. And so now he's writing a letter to many of the new Christ followers very early in the movement of Jesus uh, who, who have been scattered throughout the Roman world. And, he, and his, his uh, teachings will be deeply bathed, deeply drenched in the teaching of Jesus, applying it to their situation. It's highly practical and very topical. Okay, got it? So if you got that, you're ready to go. We're ready. And so next week, like, we'll jump in with the first practical topic. Now, I know that a lot of you won't be able to relate to this, but it's good just to come to church, right? Worship would be good. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to relate to. I know it's, it's how to go through hard times. And, and I realize that probably most of you haven't gone through hard times or not in hard times or you don't see yourself going through hard times. But if you have a friend, maybe someone who's going through a hard time, this might be one for you, all right? So, so next week, that's where we'll go. But today, uh, what I want to do is I want to spend the balance of our time uh, talking about this one radical statement that James makes in the very first verse and that goes to the heart of what it means to be a, a Christ follower and it's really kind of sin, sends like a warning shot over the bow of our ship as we, we head off in this series about here's where we're going in this series. You know, here's, here's what it means to be a Christ follower. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called James Story, uh, a radical redefinition. So let's jump in. I think the story of James is one of the most uh, crazy, amazing, incredible stories in, in all the Bible. You know, the story of this man who grows up in the family of Jesus, perhaps sharing a room. Right? Uh, when Jesus starts his ministry, he thinks his brother is crazy, truly. He, th- he thinks he has a Messiah, he thinks he's crazy. Uh, and then after the resurrection, um, goes through this, this radical redefinition of relationship. That's what I'm calling it. Um, Because all of a sudden, uh, your brother uh, that you thought you knew, it it turns out that he is so much more 
than you knew. It, it turns out this brother you've grown up with and you even thought was crazy at one point, he turns out to be the creator of the cosmos. Now, that's, that's kind of a little hard to buy into, right? That's a little hard, hard to believe your brother is, is God. I mean, that's a little, 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 a little tough. But through the resurrection, he comes to that. And so he comes to this place where he understands that his brother is not just his brother, that his brother is the creator of the cosmos. His brother is Lord of the universe. In fact, when we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, he'll put it like this. He's talking to these Christians and he'll say, uh, brothers, writing to Christ, brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's what a Christ follower is. That's what we are. We, we're believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so what does that mean? Well, well, glory is from God, right? That's the God of the Old Testament, glorious. It's the glory of God. Glory, Lord. What, what does Lord mean? You, you know in the Roman Empire that uh, they had a saying that uh, Caesar is Lord. In fact, this is why early Christians eventually got into trouble with the Roman Empire because to, to be in the Roman Empire, there was a thing called emperor worship and you eventually had to go before a statue of the emperor and you had to burn some incense and you would say this. You would say, you would bow down, you'd burn the incense and you would say, Caesar is Lord. And this is why the early Christians, would, they refused to say that. And that's why they got into trouble. And so... In the ancient world, to be Lord, for Caesar to be Lord means he, he, he's divine, right? It means he, they, they worship him as a God. He's, he's divine. And it means that he is the, the head honcho of the universe, right? And so, when, so Caesar is Lord means that you obey him, right? That there is no choice here. And so, and so Christians come along, and the earliest definition of what it meant to be Christian. We, we see this in Romans chapter 10 where it says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This is what it meant to be a Christian, to come to a place to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord, the creator of the cosmos, and you've submitted your life to him. And, and so that's what it means to be Lord. And then it goes on, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, which is, Christ is the Greek word, Christos, uh, which means Messiah. It's equivalent of Messiah in the Hebrew. And, and so James comes in chapter two and he says to this church, brothers, uh, this is who we are. We're believers in the glorious Lord Jesus, that's my big brother, Christ. You got it? You got it? And so he's gone through this radical redefinition of who Jesus is. But catch this, we all have to go through this at some point in our life. See, there, there's all of us at some point in our life, we go from Jesus is a good man. We, we, there's a point, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. He's kind of like Gandhi of the first century, right? Some of us may go, oh, we think he's deluded uh, Jewish rabbi. But at some point, we have an opinion of who Jesus is. And, and, and if we become a Christ follower, at some point in our life, we go through this door where we, the, the scales come off our eyes and we realize who Jesus is. That he's not just Jesus of Nazareth, my big brother. Like he is the Lord Jesus Christ of glory, right? And, and so, so when that happens, it requires of us a radical redefinition, not only of who Jesus is, but who we are. Are you with me? Because if he is Lord then I am his subject. If he is master, then I am his slave. You see, you see what I'm saying? Like if he is God, I am not. Right? And, so, and so when we realize who Jesus is, by, by nature of that, it changes our relationship. We go through a radical redefinition. And this is what had happened in James' life. And I want you to see this. I want you to look in James chapter 1 and verse 1. So here we go, James chapter one, verse one. So let's look at this, this redefinition he goes through in his life. He says, James, uh, a, a servant of God. Look how he defines himself. James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's gone from James, uh, 
the brother of Jesus to James the servant. That's a pretty big radical redefinition uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so think with me, like, like if I'm writing this letter, here's how I'm writing it. James, the brother of Jesus. Take that in. Take that in. Yeah, I was there. You want to hear stories? Fourth grade? Yeah, let me tell you. I got him. I'm full of them, you know? Like, I'll come to the banquet circuit. I'll just tell you stories about, about growing up with Jesus. Yeah, what was he like in first grade? Okay, let me tell you. You see? And so, can you, you understand this? That being the brother of Jesus is a big deal. And it's a very prestigious position. But that's not how he introduces himself. Because that's not who he is at the core of his being, right? Uh, or, or he could write, like, James, lead pastor of the most important church in the world. Because <laughs> right? he was the lead pastor in the mother church. And so, so he, could have, he could have described himself those ways. But James says, yeah, I could describe myself, but that doesn't tell you the deepest truth about me. The deepest truth about me is that I'm a servant of Jesus. Now, it gets better. It gets better. Because that word for servant that he uses there, it's actually the Greek word for slave. It's interesting. In the Greek, the word for slave, you might want to write this down, is the word doulos. In plural, it's doulos. And so, so, so uh, and often you see this in the New Testament that usually when the word servant is used, it's usually the word for slave. And a lot of people don't realize this, but slavery was extremely common in the ancient world. Like, like you probably didn't know this, but uh, about uh, scholars, some scholars estimate that over 70% of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Okay? Because what would happen is when Rome, you know, when they conquered an area, they'd turn those people into slaves. And so the slavery in the Roman Empire was often very different from slavery uh, in, in the history of our country. We often hear the word slavery, our mind goes to what we know of slavery in our, our country. But in the ancient Roman Empire, uh, slaves were, were a very diverse group and had nothing to do with your race or nationality or whatever like that. Um, and and they, they played a very different role. Like there were some slaves that were beaten and, and just kind of did very low-level service. But there were a lot of slaves that, that had very high positions of authority and leadership, uh, tutoring kids and rich families and stuff like that because, because these were very gifted, trained, educated people that had just been conquered by, by Rome. And so what you find, for example... And, and as you go through, that the word to describe these people are slaves. That's, it's, it's, the, it's the same word James is using here. In fact, as you go through the New Testament, uh, there, there are many times Paul's writing to these new Christ followers in different churches or, or different authors are writing. And, and as he's writing to them, uh, he says, you're, you're Christ followers now. Let's talk what it looks like to follow Christ as a slave. And it's always this word, doulos. Uh, like, let me give you a couple examples. They're in your note sheet. <coughs> In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's writing to some slaves to the church of Corinth, and they have a lot of slaves in the congregation, and he says, he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord, in other words, you came to Christ, you were a slave, he said, he is his Lord's what? Freedmen. In other words, that, that you know what, Christ has come to set you free, and you may be a slave to men, but he's come to set you free. And so, so don't look at yourself as a slave. Look at yourself as a free man in, in Christ. He says, but on the other side of it, and that's the word doulos here. Okay? But, he says, um, but he says, similarly, he who is a free man, I know when you came to Christ, you're, you're not a slave. When you're a free man, when he was called, is Christ what? Slave. slave. Do you understand this? This becomes one of the key terms in the New Testament to define what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See? He says, like in this room here, we're all free, right? There's no slaves here. We don't have slavery in our country. So we're, by definition, we're all free in this room. But Paul says that if you came when the Lord, you're a free person, guess what? You are now Christ's slave. You see that? That this becomes one of the defining uh, statements. So the New Testament defines believers in a, a variety of ways. Well, we're children of God, right? We're, we're friends of Jesus, right? Well, there are different ways, but one of the core descriptors to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus as you go through the New Testament is the word slave. You, you become a slave of 
Christ when you become a, a Christian, a, a Christ follower. And this week in your life group, you're going to be studying that more. and You're going to see how common this is because normally translators will translate the word servant throughout the New Testament, but it's really the word for slave. And sometimes there's good reasons why they're doing that, but it's normally for the word for slave. And the mark of a slave by definition, whether you're very uh, high powerful uh, slave with a lot of slaves, or whether you're just you know kind of being beaten over here, it doesn't really matter. The key ingredient of slavery is that you live for the pleasure of someone else, right? That you no longer live for yourself, that you live for someone else. That's what makes you a slave. That you don't have control over your life. You've given up control or it's been taken uh, from you. And so in the next passage in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul puts it like this. Uh, he says, you as Christ followers, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, Okay, and so in the New Testament, it spells this out, that the price that was paid for us was not silver or gold, but it was the precious blood of Christ, Peter says, that we were purchased for him like a slave. And he says, therefore, honor God with your body. Okay, so what I want you to catch is this is a core core identity piece for us. What does it mean here at Rocky Peak to be a follower of Jesus? It means that we are slaves of Jesus, that we live for his pleasure, that we belong to him. And this is the radical redefinition that James had gone through in his life. And he'd gone from being the brother of Jesus to being the slave of Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to catch. If we're going to follow Jesus, that sooner or later, he's going to ask each of us to go through this radical redefinition of our life. This often takes us a while to get this. We don't always get this when we first come to Christ, like what, what we're getting ourselves into, what it means to be a follower. Um, you know, we started the day with a story of, uh, of this young man, you know, who's 19 years old, sitting at his kitchen table. Uh, uh, folks are in bed, uh, nights uh, quiet, uh, dark throughout the house, except where he's sitting. And like I shared, the previous six months had been the most exciting six months of his life. I mean, God had come to him in a powerful way. The spirit was moving, leading. He sensed God's presence, word coming alive. He's being transformed, being used. He's kind of found the purpose of life. And he's just so excited. And there's nothing he wants to do to lose that. He's just so committed. I'm going to follow him no matter what. And so this particular night, he's just kind of reading his Bible. No, 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 something different, no, nothing big deal. Just kind of reading his Bible. And all of a sudden, he comes to this particular passage, a passage he's read many times before. But this time, it, it just comes off the page at him. It's almost like highlighted, like the letters are bolder. And it's just speaking to him with power and it's like the Holy Spirit's opening his eyes and revealing it this this powerful truth of what it means to be a Christ follower and the passage that he's reading is the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians 6 and he's reading that you've been bought with the price you no longer belong to yourself but glorify God with your body And in that moment, it's like the Holy Spirit's just taking the blinders off his eyes and he understands what at the core it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see, up to this point in his life, when he would come to a tough decision, when he would come to a point of obedience or disobedience, when he would come to a place of temptation, that that what he would do is he would kind of go before God and he might pray about that and then he'd decide what he was going to do, right? Whether he's going to obey or not obey. And what it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't get this. And he was opening his eyes this truth that, that when you became a follower of Jesus, you gave up all rights, that you belonged to him. That decision to obey or not obey, it's God. You belong to him. It, it, you, you are his. And it was such a powerful truth, and he sensed that God was speaking so powerfully. And it just, he loved, he just, the Holy Spirit was just drive, driving the reality of his truth. And it was a beautiful truth, but it was also incredibly terrifying. Because there's something deep within us, and I think you can relate to this. We can all relate to this. There is something deep within us that's deeply terrifying of absolutely surrendering to God, isn't there? Because as fallen human beings, we have a deep distrust of our creator. And it's hard to get over that. And so the big fear that we all have is if we absolutely, irrevocably 
give ourselves to God and we surrender that you are the king and I am the subject and you are the master and I am the slave and your wish is my command, there is a deep fear within us that if we do that, he will mess up our lives. We will probably send us to Africa. He he will have us marry someone who is the biggest nerd in the room. It's like this deep fear. There's this deep fear. And and so we come to Christ and yet we kind of hold back. You know, it's like one foot in, one foot out. Kind of following sometimes, not following him, because we're really afraid that he's going to mess up. And it's kind of crazy when you stop and think about it, because we're talking about the God of the universe who has died for us, like who loves us that much, which is a crazy love, like crazy love. That, to like, like who would die for us to give us life, especially when we're his enemies? It's crazy love. It's like crazy. We don't get that, Right? And then we're talking about the brightest person in the universe who designed us, who knows how to make us tick. And see, see, here's the irony of it, is what the New Testament teaches, what Jesus taught, what his followers taught, is the irony of irony is through surrender that we find freedom. You know, our whole last series is on freedom. We learned it there. It's through surrender. Remember the way Jesus put it? He who holds on to his life will lose it. You lose your life for my sake, you Find it, right? See, you see what I'm saying? It's like this, the greatest paradox of life, that it's in our surrender to him as Lord that we find our greatest freedom as people. And yet it's there on every page of the New Testament over and over again. But it's so frightening to us. It's so scary for us. And so he's sitting there, and he's transfixed with this verse that's staying at him. This spiritual truth is just being pounded. He's like in a laser lock for the next 30 minutes, cannot move, cannot, cannot get away. He knows he can't go back on Jesus because that would be to forsake the source of all life. Right, this has changed his life, but he can't move forward because it's just too terrifying. And so for the next half an hour, he's locked in, can't move, sitting there, uh, overwhelmed, doesn't know what to do, can't go back, but doesn't feel like it's the strength to go forward. And after 30 minutes, he's literally exhausted. And so a little before midnight, he's going to go to bed, doesn't know what else to do. And when he wakes up in the morning, if you were to talk to him today, he would describe it like this. And he wakes up in the morning, it's as if God had done this supernatural work in his life. Like God did this work that he could never do on his own. It was a work of grace. That God had written this verse in 1 Corinthians 6 on his heart. That you don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And somehow there was a deep death that took place. And from that day on, he became a slave of Jesus. And from that day on, he moved into incredible freedom. Something he'd never experienced before, right? And here's what I find. That as Christ's followers, that this is our core identity. But it takes us a while to get there sometimes. Like, because I've been a pastor now for 25 years or whatever it is, 25, 30 years, whatever. Um, as I've seen in the churches I've been about, I, I see kind of three kinds of Christ followers, or three kinds of people who claim to be Christians. Let's put it that way, Right? Let me describe them. I want you to think through like who you are and let me no show of hands, something like that, but <laughs> uh, okay, losers. Uh, no. Uh, so okay, so here, here's the first kind of believer. And these are more unusual in our country. Like I'm not sure around the world it's this way. Um, I think around the world there's something about if you follow Jesus, you might get killed that kind of makes better followers from the beginning. It's kind of a weeding out process. I'm not sure. But but, um, but in our country, I don't see a lot of it, but they, they, these are kind of believers, they come to Jesus, and, and the way I put it is they get a really good dose. Like, they, they, when they, they just get this great dose, and so they're, they, from the very beginning, there is this deep surrender. They understand that Jesus is Lord, and they are not, and there's this very deep surrender that happens. And from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit invades their life and begins changing from the inside out, and, and they begin following him passionately. And these are the kind of people that, that like two years after they've been a follower of Jesus, they seem to be more mature than people in following for 30 years. It's like, I don't know how that happened. It's just, it's, it. And so and they're like right from the beginning, they get this, okay? And, and, and because they get it, 
Uh, God's just moving in their life, changing, showing, learning, teaching, using. It's just powerful, okay? They, they're more the minority, okay? Now let's go over here to the other side of the spectrum. The, se- the second kind of person is kind of the people that I would say never get it, okay? So these are, these are self-identified Christians. They, they would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Uh, they, they may go to church or churchgoers or whatever. They, they would identify, yeah, I'm, I'm born-again Christian, whatever. You know, that, like, but, but it's like they've never really followed Jesus in their life. There's no fruit there, right? They, you look at their life, there's just no evidence that they're truly Christ followers. And, and so these are the kinds of people that James seems to be writing to a lot in his letter. And basically what he's saying is, hey, let me tell you something. He said, true faith changes you. Like, like if you have the real deal, it changes you. And if you're not changed, chances are you don't have the real deal. Like, like you might believe in Jesus in some kind of mental way or some kind of doctrinal way. You may go to church, but, but, but if you're not being transformed, um, chances are you don't have real faith because the way this works is that if you really believe something, you act on it. Like as human beings, that's how we're wired. Like we do what we believe. It's impossible for us not to do that. We do what we believe. And so, so you're telling me you're a Christ follower, but you don't follow his teaching. And so it, it looks to me like you don't really have the real deal, and, and you may not be saved. You may think you're saved. You may not be saved, okay? That's the second kind of person. Then there's a third kind of person. And this is what I often see kind of majority of, of Christ followers in. What kind of is that we've come to Jesus, we understand he dies for our sins, we've asked him to forgive us, we understand that he's Lord, and we understand that following him we have to leave our old life behind, and we, and we start making some changes, so we really are following, to some, maybe not super fast, but we really are following, we really are changing, there really is some evidence of fruit there. But, but even though we, we call him Lord, we've never really uh, come to the place of, of really kind of absolute surrender, that, that we really, we're, we're kind of like holding on to the control, the reins of our life. And so we check in with them, what do you want me to do, Jesus, in this? And then we decide whether we're going to do it or not. You know, and so sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And we can't really figure out why our life's not working. We can't really figure out where the power is, where the change is, where the excitement, where the passion. We, because, you know, we're Christians, but it's just, you know, we're not really that, you know, it's just not kind of working. And then, so we're sort of in that zone. And here's what I believe. I believe for many of us that when we come to Jesus, we don't really understand what we're getting ourselves into. You see? Like, like, let me give you an example. Like, if I were, like, we, we will use phrases like this. We'll say things like, have you accepted Jesus in your life? Okay? Now, I always want to say, well, accepted him as what? You see? Be, because the New Testament, to accept Jesus, you accept him for who he is. And he's Lord, right? And so when we say, have you accepted Jesus? What we're really saying is, oh yeah, I've accepted Jesus. Well, as Lord? Well, not really as Lord, you see? Or we'll use a phrase like this. Hey, have you given your life? Oh yeah, I gave my life to Christ. Well, if you gave your life to Christ, that means it doesn't belong to you, right? And yet we don't, you see what I'm saying? Or we'll use this phrase, Lord, and we'll pray like this. Lord, I'm facing this really tough situation, and uh, I, know you, I know you want me to go left, and, but I really want to go right, and so I, I pray you give me the strength to help, help me do that, because I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, dear Lord Jesus, uh, ruler of the universe, uh, creator of all things, uh, from whom all things come, and to whom all things exist, um, the Alpha and Omega, King of the Cosmos. Uh, Lord, I'm trying to decide whether to obey you. <laughs> like, time out. You're, you're standing before Caesar. Caesar says, this is what I want you to do. Okay, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. No, let's take that one out. Kill him. Right? Like, by definition, Lord means leader, ruler, Right? And so, so often, I think we come to Christ, we don't, just don't get this. And we often don't understand what we're getting ourselves into. So we go forward in a meeting, we pray the prayer, we start growing. And we don't really get this, what we've signed up for. It's kind of like, like uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you have gotten through this process of buying your first home. Right? And so you, you, get this, you get this idea, let's go buy our first home. And so you buy the home, and, so, and, and then all of a sudden, like, the property tax comes you're like, what's this big bill? I already pay every month. What's, what's this big bill? You're like, oh, that's yours. That's mine? Yeah, you bought the house. You pay the property. Really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, all right, so um, 
home, what's this homeowner's insurance? I, I had an apartment. I didn't have homeowner's insurance. And it, yeah, yeah, that's yours. Well, what's this HOA? It keeps going up every year, you know? It's not help on the way or something. He's like, he's like, uh, <laughs> he's like yeah, yeah, that's yours. What way is it? You mean I pay all the utilities? I didn't pay all the utilities before. Or here's the best one. Your roof starts leaking. Who do I call to get this thing fixed? Who pays for this? No, no, you bought the house. Like that's it. Or here's a better example. Marriage. I want to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, when you got married, you thought you knew what you were signing up for, right? <laughs> like you sit up there, you're just so proud, for better or worse. The worst thing you'd experienced at this point was a bad date, right? And you're like, for better or worse, you know? And you have to, forsaking all others. And you're about seven years into your marriage, it's not going very well, and this girl at work you're just really attracted to, and she seems to like you, you're like, Oh, is that what that means? Forsaking all others. Oh, oh, right? And you begin to understand what you committed to. You didn't really understand that before. Or here's the best one, parenting. Like if anyone really knew what they were getting themselves into, the world would be much smaller. Right? I'm telling you, you have kids, and it's like about three months in, you're like, okay, I'm ready for a month off. Where do I turn these things in? <laughs> Wait a second, 24-7? Are you kidding me? I, I remember when our daughter was born. I was so disappointed. <laughs> I've been waiting for nine months. I'm expecting her to crawl out. I, I remember she comes out, you know, and they lay her in the bassinet. I'm looking at Lynn, is that all she does? <laughs> I've, and this is a true story. It's a true story. This tells you how stupid I was. It's a true story. I, I honestly thought they could crawl when they came out. <laughs> like, I'm waiting for nine months for this, and this is what I get? <laughs> Dogs are better than this. <laughs> and they have much shorter gestation periods. Are you kidding me? And then it's like, it never ends. Like once you have a child, it's forever, right? Like some of you are empty nesters, you have older grown kids, it never ends. You ever like, okay, I don't have to worry about that anymore, kids are gone, right? What? No, that's not how it works, right? It's forever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Often in life in our most important relationships, we don't understand what we're signing up for. And it's very much like this when we become a Christ follower. We, we sign up to follow. We, we don't really understand. We just signed our life away. Right? Paul explains this to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, uh, here was the deal. He died for you so that you can live for him. When, when you became a Christian, you died to yourself so you live for God. He bought you with a price. You belong to him, right? You don't belong to yourself anymore. You live for his glory. You live for his name. You live for his fame. It's not about you. It's about him. And the sooner we get there, the sooner we experience the freedom that Jesus came to give us. Because there and there alone is the freedom. The greatest paradox of life is that when you lose your life, you gain your life and you come alive. Right? And, and so James comes to us at the start of this series, and his very first thing, he says, let me tell you who I am, and let me talk about the radical redefinition that I went through in my life, what it means to be a Christ follower. I went from, from James the younger brother to James the slave, and it's, it has changed all of my life, and it's made all the difference. And here's the thing, for all of us in this room, this is the journey that we're going on. This is the journey. It's a journey where God will bring us to situations where he's going to radically redefine the relationship. And there is the life. Because it's when we die that we rise to the whole new life. It's a funny thing because I've seen this dynamic over my life. Someone gets up and share their testimony of how they, they gave their uh, their life to Christ, just surrendered at a really deep level, or they went through this hard thing, or there was this relationship and this girl that was meant more than them God, and so they finally 
surrendered their life and gave up the girl or Okay, or they finally came to this point where they, okay, God, I'll go anywhere, even Africa. You know, or we, they tell this story of deep surrender, and we sit out there and we go, wow, what a Christian. Man, it's so noble, so awesome. Maybe someday I'll grow up and be like that. You know? And we're like, whoa, ooh, you are. You are the true Christ follower. Like it's some kind of noble thing to surrender to Jesus. Let me get Surrendering to Jesus is the only bright thing to do, right? Like when Jesus was describing his kingdom, he said, let me talk to you about my kingdom. And my kingdom, uh, he says, it's, it's like kingdom of heaven. It, it's like a guy walking through a field one day, and somehow he figures out, I don't know how, but somehow he figures out that there's a treasure buried in this field. And so he is so excited. So he goes and he sells everything he has. He liquidates his IRAs. He sells his house. He has a garage sale. He sells everything he can, everything he can to get enough money to buy that field. And when the deal is done, he is just floating. He is just skipping. He is filled with joy. Why? Because it cost him everything, but the value was so amazing that it was like nothing, right? Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like. He says, he didn't make a sacrifice for Jesus. He made a great deal. And here's what James, at the start of this letter, James is going to come to us. He's going to say, let me tell you who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus. That's my core identity. And in fact, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a core identity. And so in this book, I'm going to lay out, this letter I'm going to lay out for you what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you're going to find out whether you're a true Christ follower or not, or whether you're just made of words, and whether you're fooling yourself. Because here is the path to following Jesus. If you say you believe that Jesus is Lord, then you follow him and you obey. And if you call him Lord and you don't follow, you're just fooling yourself. And you have not experienced the life that he came to give you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Uh, for what you're doing in our church, God, and just, uh, just looking around, seeing the hungry hearts that are here as we gather week by week to seek you, to pursue you, to be transformed and changed by you. And God, we just want to be that church that lives for your name, lives for your glory. We want to set free from ourselves to live for another. We want to be like Jesus who his greatest food in life was to do the will of his Father, that his greatest joy in life was just to do only what his Father showed him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just descend on us by your spirit and you'd speak to us in our moment of fear and weakness, those times when we're afraid to follow, we're afraid to surrender, we're afraid that you'll mess up our life. May you have grace and mercy upon us, that you would show us that this is not, that this is, this is a path to life. This is like the greatest treasure in the field. There's nothing noble about surrendering to you. It's just the only bright thing to do because therein is life. We pray this in your name. Amen. And forever, I would pray, have your way. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? And he said, we should pray like this. He said, our, our Father in the heavens, uh, may your name be honored uh, in all the earth. And may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that's the heart prayer. It's the heart cry of a Christ follower that, that God's will, which is perfect and good and right, would be done on earth, this fallen dark planet, in the way it's done in heaven. And of course, that starts with our lives. And that's why we talk about entering the kingdom of God. You see, when a, when a man or a woman becomes a follower of Jesus, they leave the kingdom of darkness. They move into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we become kingdom people who live for the advance of his kingdom, who live for the raising up of his name, who live for his will. And it starts here and now in us. And it goes out from there. May this week be a week that you move into the freedom of the children of God. It's a freedom that comes only through surrender. 
There's really nothing super noble about surrendering to the brightest and best person in the universe. Really, to do anything else, we would just be an idiot. And I choose that word carefully. <laughs> the, the Bible's word for it is a fool. Someone who just doesn't get it. Just someone who's slow on the uptake. Someone who's just blinded. Ah, but as the Holy Spirit begins opening our eyes, we, we find that surrendering to Jesus isn't a sacrifice. It's the only bright thing to do. A- and it leads to the life that he's come to give us. May this be a week where you surrender to the will of God in your life. Where you, you absolutely and irrevocably embrace this high calling to be a slave of Jesus. It's the only slavery that leads to freedom, that leads to life. God bless you. Love you. Next week, hard times. You may not have any, but maybe you know a friend. So uh, I'll see you next week. God bless. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.